again when a television program is just about to start, um, it'll come up on the screen that because of some content that it may include, uh, that viewer discretion is advised. So this morning we want to talk about stewardship and we want to get specific talk about money. So I was thinking that the next, to tell you that the next 30 minutes contains thoughts and ideas that may be offensive and challenging. And audience discretion is advised. Was that okay? So if you want to leave, that's okay. Just leave your purse or your wallet with the person next to you. Um, and then you can go. Let me ask you, do you know what a philanthropist is? What's a philanthropist? Obviously, you are not one of them, so what's a philanthropist? Sorry? Someone who gives money away. Thank you, Philip. That's exactly right. Philanthropists are the kind of people that give 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 million dollars um, to hospitals and libraries and schools, art museums, and when they give away their 10, 20, 30 million, and it really does not change their overall wealth. They still got a lot left. But philanthropists are people who give generously out of their abundance. And they still got lots left over. Several years ago I was reading an article in a, in a magazine and it gave a roll call of the world's richest people from a couple of years ago. Um, number one you might expect was Bill Gates. Bill Gates had 56 million left over from whatever he was doing. Number two was Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's an investment guru um, in our world. Um, number four, I don't know who number three was, but number four was a man called Ingvar Kampert. He is the man whose family founded IKEA. He was worth 33 billion. Down the list, it was a BC magazine, down the list um, was our local billionaire Jimmy Patterson. Jimmy Patterson was 230th on the list. I thought, oh, poor Jimmy. Um, you know, all that's far down, but, you know, whatever. By the way, I checked the names against our church database, and none of you are listed there. <laughs> Which is just as well, because if so, our offerings should be a lot higher than they are. But, to get serious, when we talk about the nature and character of God, one of the things we say that who God is like, we're to be like. So, for instance, if it says in the scriptures as it does that God is holy, then we are called to be holy. We are to copy and to replicate His character in us. The Bible says to us that God is love. And so we are called to be love also, to follow through from that. Okay? Now here's a verse. You're going to need your Bibles a bit this morning. Um, and if you start in the New Testament with me, this comes from the book of Titus. Have I got this up? Okay? Thank you. But when the kindness of God and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. We were singing about that just a moment ago. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Now when the Bible talks about the love of God, you, some of you may know this, but let's just get, just, can we slow down just a minute, Winnie? Can you go back to the Titus one? Thank you. When the, um, when the Bible uses the word the love of God, what's the word in Greek that it often uses? Here's with an A. Agape. Alright? If you dig your way into this verse, you find that that's not the word that's used here. And those things intrigue me. So let's move on. What it really says is when the kindness and the philanthropy, that's the word that it uses of God. It's talking about God as a philanthropist. 
So we don't find the word agape, which is what you'd expect. We find this different word, this word philanthropy. And it describes the picture of the heart of God. It is really a bottomless well of mercy and grace towards all of humankind. It's an unlimited, unending depth of mercy towards people. It keeps on giving. It keeps on overflowing. And yes, it's agape, but there's this slightly different twist to the word. It's philanthropy. God is the philanthropist. God is the one who loves us. He's the divine philanthropist. This amazing love, this amazing grace, this amazing mercy, all poured into one. It never stops. So as God is holy, we're called to be holy. As God is loving... We are called to be loving. We understand that. As God is the philanthropist, so we are also called to be philanthropists, to be generous in what we do. Do you know what it says that uh, we value? If you look up our website, here are the things that this church says is important to it. This is how we describe ourselves at VCBC. It says to us, we value stewardship. And I know that's broader than money. Money is often the touchstone. Broader than money. Stewardship is really how we handle all of our lives and all of our possessions. But this morning we'll often settle down on money. We value stewardship as an expression of our gratitude to God for His gifts of life and our partnering with God in the extension and strengthening of His kingdom. That, folks, is how we describe ourselves. At VCBC. That's what we say is important to us. That's we, what we want to say is the kind of people and community of people we want to be. We're people who value stewardship as an expression of our gratitude to God. Martin Luther, that's from the Reformation 1600 times, not Martin Luther King, but you know, way back there. Martin Luther said every Christian needs three conversions. You need the conversion of the heart. You need the conversion of the mind, and you need the conversion of the purse, of the wallet, of the checkbook. In other words, God needs to get hold of all of our lives, including the stewardship of our money. The reason for this is we live in a culture that exalts money, that exalts things, and we often decide who and what is important on the basis of how much we have. We have moved having and hoarding pretty much to the top of our list. This is from Paul when he writes to a young pastor called Timothy. He says, we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. Now that's true. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People, says Paul, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then a verse which is often misquoted, but let's try to get it right this morning. He says, for the love of money, that's not money, understand it's the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money, that's what was driving them. He says, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First John adds to that. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because, he says, everything that is in the world, the cravings of sinful man, man here means obviously humanity, the lust of his eyes, And the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, it does not come from God, 
But really it comes from the world. It comes from looking around us. I often think that that phrase, the lust of the eyes, um, really relates a lot to our lives. We, we say, well, I don't, I'm not going out to buy anything today. I'm just going window shopping. And in window shopping, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're looking. We're lusting. We're looking. And then we see something we think, man, I wonder how much is left on my visa card, whether I really can have that or not. And so we see our looking moves very easily in our society to lusting. I love the quote by a man called Art Gish. He says, we buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. And I would have added one more phrase to that. We buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like by money that we don't have. But as always, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And here's what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what needs to be challenged and changed as always is our heart. More than we know, We need this transformation in our lives from greed to generosity, from getting to giving, from hoarding to helping, from selfishness to sacrifice. Now I think we tend to look at the Bible, and when it comes to the whole area of money, which is a struggle for many people, one of the most popular programs today is, um, it's called, Till Debt Do Its Part. Have you seen that one? Okay, the rest of you are not prepared to say you have, but I know that most of you have, okay? A lady comes in and she's trying to help people move out of debt, out of the red in their lives, and into the black. Sometimes when it comes to the Bible, we, we tend to say, is there some secret formula that God has for money? And if I just could get hold of this secret formula, then I would have money. I don't think there is. But what we do find in the Bible are proverbs, parables, and principles, and stories of people. That's what we find. And this morning, I'd like you to meet three people. If I could, I'd like to bring them on stage whose lives were changed by meeting Jesus. Three case studies of people who were transformed. Okay? You're going to need your Bibles. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Turn it to. We're going to see how, first of all, case study number one. We move from greed to generosity. This is the story of a man who was changed from being a taker to being a giver. Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there he met a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And being a short man, he couldn't because of the card. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, we'll call him Zach, come on down. I want to stay at your house today. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now this is the story of this little guy called Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. Now in those days that meant he didn't just work for the tax department. He bought the right to collect taxes in an area. And he took what the government rate called for. And then he charged anything else he wanted above that from his own people. And so you see these people became a really hated group. Hated by their own people. And one day... To his surprise, this little guy called Zach ended up entertaining Jesus. We don't have a record of what they talked about over dinner, but maybe it went something like this. Jesus is talking. He says, you know, Zach, in life you're a taker. And you're clutching and holding on to all the wrong things. 
You're going after all the wrong things in life. Your hands may be full, and your bank book may be full, but your heart is empty. i got to tell you, everybody in this town hates you. Zach, all you're trying to get is stuff. You came into this world with nothing, and you're going to go out with nothing. And when you die, let me tell you, everybody will be happy, and there will be nobody at your funeral. Jesus didn't let up on him. When money and things become all you get, he says, it will leave you disappointed every time. But like a drug, you will always want more and more until it eats you all up. And nobody had ever talked to Zach like that before. And the words of Jesus really got to him. And his mind began to open. Then his heart. Finally his hands. Here's what it says in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give you half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. That's his story. It illustrates a spiritual truth that is true and as constant as the law of gravity in our lives. It's this out of Second Corinthians. Remember this, says Paul. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And you need to know that that's a biblical principle and truth that applies to every sphere and every area of our lives. When we reap sparingly, when we do something sparingly, we don't get back very much. But when we're prepared to be generous and give a lot into stuff, we will get a lot back from stuff and from life. We get back what we give. That's what the Bible teaches us. And what we need then is to encounter the deep grace and the deep bottomless love of this divine philanthropist. And we'll be changed from greed to generosity. Second case study. We move from selfishness to sacrifice. Now you're still in the Gospel of Luke, but go back to chapter 7. Okay, chapter 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Verse 37, a woman who had lived a sinful life and that time learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When we meet this bottomless grace of God, We're changed from thinking in terms of economy to extravagance. We're changed from thinking in terms of what's the minimum I can give to the maximum. So what does this woman do after she decides to quit her life as a prostitute? The story is told for us. She came and sat at the feet of this holy son of God. The one who could look into her heart. Look into her eyes. And see every dark and dirty thing she had ever done. And what men had done to her. And she took a bottle of perfume. Broke the top off. And poured it over him. This extravagant act of love. Gives us a glimpse into the life of a woman. Who had felt the heartbeat of God in forgiveness. And all that she could do was to take the most precious thing she had been saving. Perhaps she had been saving it for her wedding night. 
when on that night a man would gently make love to her as a wife and not merely someone that he had bought for an hour of selfish sexual pleasure and in her response of extravagance she poured it all away on Jesus when we meet this grace of God we are changed from thinking in terms of economy to extravagance we're changed from thinking in terms of the minimum to maximum and moves us from keeping and holding to giving away case study number three we move from again minimum to maximum maybe one of the most touching stories of Jesus Luke chapter 21 move forward to chapter 21 First verse. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich people putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And then he saw a poor woman who had two very small copper coins. She comes and brings her gift. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these gifts, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she gave out of her poverty and all that she had to live on. Sometimes it's very, very easy for us to think in terms of giving. What's the minimum I have to give to get by? What's the minimum I can give in order just to make things do? What do I have to do for the minimum to get by? Once again, when we meet this divine, bottomless grace of God, we are moved from giving the minimum to thinking now in terms of the maximum. You see, we need to get this picture. When Jesus, when the people brought the gifts to the temple, as Jesus saw, there was a row of 13 big trumpets. Metal trumpets. 13 of them in a row. And probably most of you are sort of almost way too young now to remember the old gramophones that had a huge big, big horn that came out. One of them was in my grandparents' house. And that's how the sound came out. Okay? So these 13 big metal trumpets... Huge, big, like big tubas. And if you did it right, when you had a handful of coins or whatever, if you did it right and threw them in right, people could hear the gifts as they dropped all the way down and they could hear the coins fall. And if you really got it to do it, people might turn around and say, Wow! Hear all the money that that person put in. You could impress people with how much you were giving. So for many of these people, after they gave their offerings, they're like philanthropists. they got a lot left. Several years ago, it was reported uh, one of the men, richest men in the world gave $40 million to a school that happened to be in China. And I'm sure they deeply appreciate it. That's a lot of money. But when I read the rest of the article and did a little calculating, he gave $40 million to this school. That was one six hundredth of his wealth. It was 0.15 of what he had. So he still didn't left to live on. In the story of Jesus, here was a woman who had hardly anything left, if anything at all. In comparison to the others, she was about as poor as gets. She had only two pennies. That was maybe supper that night at a market. And she drops that in maybe very quietly. No one made her do that. No one demanded of that. 
She probably needed them more than anyone else that day to buy food for her home. But her heart told her to do it. And she responded. That was her generosity. From minimum to maximum. It says to us in the book of Corinthians, each person should give what he's decided in his own heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves, and notice the word, God loves a cheerful, in Greek that's the word hilarious. Okay, so a little later this morning when we take our offering, you can laugh. Because it says God loves a cheerful, God loves a hilarious giver and what we bring to that. I've been a pastor for 43 years now. And in the six or seven churches that we've served, one of the things I've chosen not to know and never know is how much people give to the church. I don't know what you give. I don't know what other people give. I have simply chosen in 43 years of serving churches not to know who brings and who gives what. That is simply not my business. That's your business. Because it says in Corinthians again, each person should give what he has decided in his own heart to give. Because God loves the cheerful, hilarious giver who's giving out of a response to the grace and love of God. In case you don't know, our church here is supported by the regular, faithful, weekly and monthly gifts that each one of you bring. Some of you are raising families in, frankly, one of the most expensive cities in North America. And so when you write a check, that's coming out of the family budget, and that that would buy groceries and jeans and runners and whatever else. I understand that. Some of you retired, maybe on fixed incomes. I thank God for your gifts. Some of you may be single parents as I get to know you. And I know your sacrifice. When you open your purse and give 5, 10, 20 more dollars... Some of you are students. Your university, you're paying fees. You're living away from home, whatever. And so when you give, you are like this woman. You're giving sacrificially. And you may some days have little left over. But I said this was dangerous stuff. And so can I be really honest? Many people in a city like Vancouver live with a great deal of abundance. $5 would hardly get you through Starbucks. And so I would say to all of us, if you come here and you receive from the ministry of worship and teaching and the ministry of the church, and and you drop a toonie in the offering bag, we're really tipping God. We're not tithing. A tithe, by the way, is a tenth. You know, and it's in our budget right now, this Sunday, that we're well behind on our budget as we come towards the end of the year. We're about $140,000 behind for the whole church. And we're asking you seriously to consider your part in bridging that gap. And every person needs to give what God has decided in their own heart. So, what would it mean in this series about taking a step forward? What would it mean to take a step forward in the of stewardship? And maybe you need to start for the first time giving on a more regular basis. Perhaps every month you need to increase a little in what you're able to give. Maybe you're not at the 10% tide level right now. But you need to start giving more regularly. My prayer is that as you meet and encounter and come to know this mercy and grace of this divine philanthropist, that would be our response.
There are times in the life of a church to be sacrificial in what we give to think far, far beyond ourselves. And that can only be prompted when we listen to the heartbeat of this grace and mercy of God. Sometimes you hear preachers today, especially in the day of televangelism, and they'll declare with great authority that as you give to God, and if you give to God, God owes you. God will pay you back because God owes you. Can I just tell you this morning, that makes me really angry when I hear stuff like that. Simply because God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. God is prepared to give us and trust us with a great deal when He knows that He can trust us with the gifts that He places into our hands for stewardship. But God owes us nothing. The reason that we respond to God is because of His grace. We sang about that this morning. And out of a heart of gratitude. That's why we give. It's out of the grace of God. Um, just came to my mind the last couple of lines of an old, old hymn. We don't sing it very more. Um, it begins, When I survey the wondrous cross in which the Prince of Glory died. And the last two lines of the last verse say... Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I struggled with that line, the last line, for a long time. Because if love is love, love doesn't demand. I love my wife, but I don't demand that she do certain things. I love her, but love out of my heart to hers, I can't demand that she makes certain things for supper or whatever. Love does not demand in a human relationship. And then one day, we were singing that hymn in church service a number of years ago. And it struck me like a thunderbolt. And I broke down in tears. And I suddenly realized that only something is deep and as high and as broad as the love of God had the right to demand my life and my soul and my all. God owes us nothing. Nothing. But when He knows He can trust us, He's prepared to trust us with much. And it's His love that can demand all of my life, my soul, Am I all? Grace is not about owing. God is not about keeping accounts. I understand that. I did that morning. So the common thinking might need to go as we look at the church budget and church giving and all that kind of stuff. You know what? But we've, we've got needs in our own house. We've got kids in university and we're trying to pay the bills for them. And we've got a car and we've got a house. We've got a mortgage. I often thought, by the way, the word mortgage, M-O-R-T-G-A-G-E, comes out of the Greek word, sorry, out of the French word M-O-R-T, which is the word for death. Mortgage payments are trying to kill you every month. I think that's what that means, but never mind. Um, you know, we, so we got to get our own... The common thinking is this. You know, God, I'd love to give something to you, but i got to get my own house in order. i got to get my own bills and my visa payments and all that in order. And then when I get that all cleared up, then we'll start and talk about giving to you. There's a warning about that. It comes from a book that I bet you not too many of you have read recently. If ever. It's the book of Haggai. 
I got you. Some of you are thinking, where do we find that? Well, go to the break between Malachi and Matthew. That's Old New Testament. Okay, go that in your Bible. And then turn left. When you turn left, some of you don't believe me. Okay, go to the break between Old and New Testaments, and then turn left. And you'll find, as you go back through a series of books called the Minor Prophets, you will find Haggai, there's 12 Minor Prophets, written towards the end of the Bible. Okay? And there you'll find Haggai, just a couple of chapters long. Our problem is we don't read these books because we've absolutely no idea where they come in history, in Old Testament history. So I'm going to give you a very, very quick Old Testament history lesson. And here it is. In 586, the city of Jerusalem fell, and it fell to the Babylonians. People are taken into exile for a period of 70 years. By the way, that's where you put Daniel. So that you get Daniel living in the right century, that's where Daniel appears, okay? Just after the, um, the fall of Jerusalem off to Babylon and away they go. Around about 520... Um, some people started to return. They're given a decree, an order they can return if they want. And some of them move back to Jerusalem. They're all excited. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the city. That actually doesn't happen until about 440, which is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But around 520 to 516, so 70 years after you go into exile, you find the books of Haggai and Zechariah. So you got everybody living in the right houses now? You got that? Okay, so that's a very, very brief summary of that period of Old Testament history. The people who come back started with great enthusiasm. You know, they headed down to Home Depot, they bought all the supplies, um, and they kind of got going. But as often happens, they get distracted. This priority of rebuilding the temple sort of fades. And so they got to think, maybe we should build our own houses first. Maybe we should take care of our own stuff. And if you've got the book of Haggai open, or if you've found it by now, okay, here's what it says. Let me read. The people then say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. For the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your own paneled homes? Now God's not against paneling. Okay? But what God is paneling here means as a sense of being permanent. Well, this house, in other words, the house of God, the temple, remains in ruins. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now catch his words. Give careful thought to your ways. This describes today. You've planted, sorry, you've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never had your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse that's got holes in it. In other words, you earn money, but you put them into this purse with holes, and what does it do? It simply runs out the bottom. You put more money in, and it runs out the bottom. You put more money in, and it runs out the bottom. Doesn't that kind of sound like today? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains. Bring down timber and build a house, so that I may take, <coughs> I may take pleasure in it beyond it. You expected much. But see, it turned to little. You brought it home. (sighs) Says God, I blew it away. Why? Because my house, his temple, still remains a ruins. While each of you is busy with your own house. You get the picture. That's the warning of the book of Haggai. Here's a postscript to the subject of giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Phenomenal verse, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You need to memorize something? There's a verse to memorize. It is saying that Jesus knew the heartbeat of God, and Jesus also sat at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus was rich. Jesus enjoyed and Jesus knew all of the wealth of heaven. He enjoyed all that heaven had right there. That was belonged to the Father and the Son. But Jesus, it says, chose to become poor so that we would become rich. Now, there's an idea here in Greek that you do not understand and you just don't see in English. And it's this. There are two different Greek words for poor. Do I get them up on the screen? Am I there or not? Okay, there's two words for poor. Trust me, there are. Okay. One of them describes someone who is poor who works for a day's wages. In other words, they don't have a huge pile of money in the bank. But they've got, they work for the day and at the end of the day they, they get their, their money at the end of the day. They go to the market and they buy food and they have their family supper. And next day they go back to work again for more money. They live from what we call from paycheck to paycheck. Many of us would understand that. There's another word for poor. It's the word for destitute. You, you don't have a job. It's the word for someone who's down and out. It's the word for someone who has nothing. And that's the word that's used here to describe Jesus. Jesus was not someone who simply worked for the day, got his money, had supper, went home, went to bed, and went back to work the next day. It is saying that Jesus was down and out. Jesus was lined up at the food bank. Jesus was destitute. He had nothing. He was penniless. He was flat broke. He was not living from paycheck to paycheck. He was destitute. And why? It is so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Rich in the things of heaven. That you and I might be wealthy in the economy of God. That you and I might live lives that are prosperous in his mercy and in his grace. And we would have a bank account that is filled with love. And filled with generosity. Because that's what the philanthropist does. He pours into us. And that puts us on the roll call of the richest people on earth. And the richest people also for heaven. Remember what our statement says about who we are. We value stewardship. All that we hold in our hands. As an expression of our gratitude to God. For his gifts of life. And for our partnering with God in the extension and the strengthening of his kingdom. So this morning, in worship, do you know that you have met the divine philanthropist? You've met someone who has taken all of the wealth and the grace and the love of heaven in his heart. And has emptied it. And poured it into your life. And poured it into my life. That's why one day I suddenly realized in the church, in the middle of preaching, love so amazing, so divine demands my life my soul my all we're going to close this part of our message just a little bit differently this morning and I've written just a very short simple liturgy on giving a little different from what we normally do so in a moment I'll ask you to stand we're going to read some scriptures and the ushers will come as we read and then pray together, we'll take the offering and the worship team will come and lead us in a song as we do that. So may I invite you to stand.
And this prepares us this morning for our offering. It's a very simple liturgy. Um, I will read as the leader, and I read the scripture, and then I've prepared something for you to respond. It simply takes our offering, which often sense is crushed between, oh, announcements and greeting and a few other things. It says, God, as we stand before you this morning and bring our offerings. We need to do that. Do it thoughtfully, do it carefully. And do it as part of our worship. So this morning, let me start our readings, and I would read this. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. You respond. Father God, as we seek first your kingdom, we will put your house before our house. We will put your before our hands, and doing so, we place our everyday needs into our But when the kindness and the philanthropy of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of our righteous deeds, things we had done, but because of His mercy. Your kindness moves our lives from selfishness to sacrifice. Your love moves our lives from greed to giving with gratitude. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes our sakes he became poor destitute down and out so that we through his poverty might become rich we cannot fully know the cost of all that Jesus gave up we cannot fully grasp all that is ours to pay because of his sacrifice our to open our hearts and our hands and give them all that we have and all that we are. Please, as we stand for a moment, pray with me. And then we'll take our offering. <laughs>